0: All right, so uh, so Norm just pointed out that I I, I did make a, an off comment uh, about uh, American Empire and and uh, that it, it was disrespectful and there's um, especially without giving any kind of context for uh, for that. So I wanted to apologize to, to to Norm as a veteran, apologize to you guys if um, you know for rash judgment in that situation um, so session 6 the gospel of the kingdom um, so again the the Messiah comes and uh, the the Christ comes and raises the dead and establishes the kingdom so these this is the uh, uh, nature of 1 Corinthians 15 where Christ the first fruits, uh, comes and then those with him, and dominions given uh, over to him. He reigns until he puts all enemies under his feet, and so Christ he raises the dead and uh, establishes the kingdom. So likewise in the uh, within the the Platonic material and material context, the kingdom is um, is uh, is uh, again. Um, not interpreted in a governmental light as relating to the governance of a kingdom over the earth, because the reason we do kingdoms, the reason we do government, is the same reason we do family, the same reason we do marriage, because it's it's inherent in the nature of God and we're created in the image of that. And so as God sits on a throne over the heavens and the earth, so also Men uh, function and set up thrones and establish governments. And so, within this context, uh, the kingdom, immateriality, however that's spelled, um, uh, the kingdom of heaven is generally interpreted as the metaphysical immaterial realm as a whole, rather than the temporal reality at the end of the age. And, uh, and this is, or that's the context, in, if you emphasize on, the, uh, is on salvation within this context, escaping to the immaterial kingdom, or if you focus on the dominion, then the dominion equals uh, the kingdom in which the God is establishing sovereignty over materiality. And it's this one in particular where the damage really happens. This one just—it causes damage because it leaves people without a real hope in 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 the in light of uh, oppression and wickedness. This one really actually damages people because it uh, it it inevitably it inevitably every time uh, leads to. Uh, aggregating wealth and power at the expense of others because it it leads to us relating to wealth and power the way the world does and so I just put a quote from Alvin McLean um, uh, and yeah so uh, it's a good quote the identification of the kingdom with the church because the church is identified as the manifestation of the sovereignty and as the you know, as the scepter of Christ with the Pope as the vicar, and however that plays out, and uh, it's the same way throughout the church that identifies the kingdom with the church. The identification of the kingdom with the church has led historically to ecclesiastical policies and programs which, even when not positively evil, have been far removed from the original simplicity of the New Testament ecclesia, the church. So, e- even when you could argue that it's not, uh, it's not positively evil, though generally it always ends up in, in fairly substantial evil, it doesn't leave you with a church that has the same, like at the bottom, the pilgrim character of the uh, first century church. It's easy to claim that in the, quote, present kingdom of grace, the rule of the saints is wholly, quote, spiritual exerted only through the moral principles and uh, through moral principles and influence but practically once the church becomes the kingdom in any realistic theological sense it is impossible to draw any clear line between the principles and their implementation through political and social devices because the scriptures upon which all of the kingdom passages are founded is that the saints will inherit the earth i.e., the money and the power and the land of the earth. And so, therefore, if the kingdom is now through the church, then you interpret that as we inherit the earth and the kingdom now. And therefore, we inherit the glory now. And when you do that, ultimately, it's at the expense of others. Um, For the logical implications of a present ecclesiastical kingdom or church kingdom are unmistakable and historically have always led in only one direction, i.e. political control of the state by the church. The distances down this road traveled by various religious movements and the forms of control which were developed have been uh, have been widely different. So whether it be various movements within uh, Catholicism and different orders within that or Eastern Orthodoxy or Protestantism and various uh, movements within that, there's various... Uh, 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 degrees and levels to which that is applied to uh, gaining control over the state and establishing a kingdom and establishing domain and land and assets and buildings etc etc rather than like Jesus says in Luke 12 seek first the kingdom your father is pleased he's glad to give you the kingdom little flock therefore sell your possessions and give to the poor store up for yourself treasure in heaven where no moth destroys and no thieves break in. Be dressed and ready for your master, like one who's waiting for their master at the wedding banquet. I.e., be dressed and ready by using your power and wealth in this age to love people, like Luke 16. So anyway... uh, The difference is very great between the Roman Catholic system and the modern Protestant efforts to control the state. Also between the ecclesiastical rule of Calvin and Geneva and the fanaticism of Munster and the English fifth monarchy. All different forms and expressions of the kingdom now through the church, but the same uh, basic thrust in the same end. But the basic assumption is always the same. The church in some sense is the kingdom and therefore has a divine right to rule or it is in the business of the church to, quote, establish fully the kingdom of God among men. Thus the church loses its pilgrim character and the sharp edge of its divinely commissioned witness is blunted. So, uh, I uh, I just uh, pasted in the Idea of what the kingdom will be is um, all the covenants ultimately point to the kingdom that will be established. As originally the uh, kingdom of Adam was in the original. Now, I whenever you get into this discussion, you always have to uh, delineate between a present, everlasting kingdom of God which rules over everything in all creation versus the use of kingdom as an eschatological, on-the-earth kingdom. And the reason you get the two is because you're referencing God on His throne in the height of the heavens and the throne of man on the earth when it's restored in righteousness. So I just use the phrase, the universal kingdom of God and the messianic kingdom of God. And it's that phrase, kingdom of God, that's not used at all in the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament, and it's Jewish phraseology during the time of the Roman Empire that refers to the messianic kingdom. And this is commonly acknowledged by all scholars. All scholars acknowledge that the phrase kingdom of God is was Jewish phraseology to represent the messianic kingdom. What then goes on to be said is that Jesus reinterpreted that phrase to represent a spiritualized kingdom and an immaterial resurrection, etc., etc., etc. And then, so they start with the parables and then quote Matthew 3, Matthew 11, Matthew 12, Matthew 21, Luke 17. It is just like... One, two, three, four. And so and so, uh, what I want to work through is just to establish the concept of the kingdom of God as it was spoken, as it was expected. And the only thing that was a mystery and not expected was the suffering of the Messiah before the glory of the kingdom of God. And that only those who are crucified with the Messiah will inherit the kingdom of God. And that it's a crucified Christ, and it's the power that testifies to the crucified Christ, and it's the crucified heirs that inherit with Christ in the kingdom. It's the crucified kingdom. And so this is what all of the parables and all of the, the uh, uh, expounding upon the law, etc., in contrast to the Pharisees who uh, would not embrace the cross and who could not listen and hear that the Messiah had to uh, suffer before entering His glory. So, um, page 2, uh, I, and this is, the, uh, this, is, this is just as clear as I understand it at this point, but the age to come and the kingdom of God in the age to come will look like this. And I refer to it as concentric rings of glory, in which the glory of God emanating with the Messiah Himself upon His glorious throne from the Messianic Temple in Jerusalem, in Israel, to the nations of the whole earth. And so you have from the Messiah the glory of God covering the entire earth. And, uh, and all of the Gentiles being blessed in the Messiah and bringing their glory into Jerusalem, paying homage to the King of Israel. And uh, so the glory of the whole earth, Psalm 72, and I'll just quote a few of these, uh, in each, the glory of the whole earth, the glory of Israel, the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of the temple, the glory of the Messiah. And this glory constitutes the kingdom of God, the glory of the kingdom of God in the age to come that the Messiah establishes at His coming when He raises the dead in glory. Alright. So, it's Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May his name endure forever, may it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him. They'll call him blessed. Praise be to the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory, referencing all the nations." Being blessed, Isaiah 11. They will uh, the 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 branch from the sprout from Jesse will arise. The spirit will rest on him. Spirit of knowledge, might, revelation, etc. And he will strike the earth with his rod and judge the peoples, the nations. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations, the Gentiles, it's the same word in the Hebrew and the Greek, the nations Gentiles will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He'll assemble assemble the scattered people of Judah. Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, See so your king comes to you, righteous having salvation. I'll take away the chariots from me from the war horses from Jerusalem, like Isaiah 2. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. And the battle bow will be broken. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And so this is the context of Revelation 11. The seventh uh, angel sounds, there's a loud voice, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The time has come for you to take your great power and begin to reign for judging the saints and, and destroying those who destroy the earth. And then Romans 15, this is the context where Paul is talking about unity between Jew and Gentile. You don't have unity between Jew and Gentile in this age because there's homogeny between the two. You have unity because you'll have unity in the age to come. So he says, Romans 15, In light of the age to come... And the unity they will be established then, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it's written. He quotes Psalm 18, He quotes Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, Psalm 11, all three of which are talking about in the age to come, the Messiah being the hope of the nation and the glory over the earth. So then more specifically, he's not only the, the, the glory of the kingdom in the age to come will not just be over all the nations, but specifically over Israel and the descendants of Abraham. "'Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nations.'" He's remembered His love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Right? Rejoice in the resurrection. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. The creation groans, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So he restores the, the glory to the descendants of, of Abraham, of which the Davidic kingdom was a sign and a, a deposit, so to say, of what will come in the age to come. It wasn't the, the Davidic kingdom wasn't a reality unto itself. It wasn't a fulfillment unto itself. Inheriting the land wasn't a fulfillment unto itself. The Lord brought these descendants of Abraham because they're crushed and broken. By the, by the Egyptian uh, 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 tyranny and domination, he brought them out and brought them into the land to strengthen their faith. That we will inherit this land under the seed, under the Messiah, in the age to come, and he'll fix everything in the whole earth. That was why the Lord brought them out, to strengthen their faith, so they wouldn't be broken and give up, give up under the rule of the Egyptians. And then he gave them a king. And established him in righteousness. Then they established a temple as signs and to strengthen their faith in the age to come, like like David says, in uh, in First uh, Chronicles 29 when he is he has the whole assembly before him and he's devoting the temple. He says, "Praise be to you, O Lord God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, yours is the greatness and the power." of and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, everything in the heavens is, and on the earth is yours. Yours, O oh Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all wealth and power come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and your hands are strength and power. You exalt and give strength to all. And so he's referencing the sovereignty of God unto strengthening faith that he will execute that God who rules everything uh, uh, will execute judgment. Now, O oh God, we give you thanks. He'll fulfill His covenants That's the and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who, who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given uh, you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope, etc. And so... He's just expressing, I have the same hope as Abraham. None of the covenants have been fulfilled, and none of them. God has simply done this to strengthen our faith in the day of the Lord, and when the Messiah will come and establish Israel as as uh, as the center of uh, of the world in the age to come. Isaiah 9, front us, a child is born, a son's given, the government will be upon his shoulders, he'll be called, etc., etc., the increase of his government, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what's just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. So the issue and contention with this is that God's an ethnicist. That's just all there is to it. And you can't get around the fact in the coming kingdom and the coming age, God will make a distinction between the nations. He's a racist. Deal with it. Not racist with the negative baggage. He's an ethnicist. He's chosen one group of people, not for two separate plans, one material earthly plan of salvation and one immaterial for the Gentiles, the whole dispensational bit. Though I I appreciate the dispensationalist movement for at least pointing out that God makes a distinction between Jew and Gentile. But it's not a distinction of inheritance uh, there's no Because when you get the two phrases in Romans 10 and Galatians 3, God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In what? In richly blessing them all. He makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile in, in the nature of the inheritance, in their glory in the resurrection. But there'll be a distinction in the functioning within that inheritance. The same way that a father makes no distinction between his children in his inheritance and his blessing them. But he makes a distinguishment in the eldest son versus the younger sons and how they function within that inheritance. And he chooses one nation and group of people to be the Messiah will be king over that nation and all the nations will come to that nation, to that holy hill where the Messiah will rule. That's just the way it is. One plan of salvation. I'm a Gentile. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be raised in glory. I'm good with that. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't, I don't have to be a descendant of Abraham. But he really is jealous for that people group. And if you don't realize that he really is jealous for the descendants of Abraham, you're really missing a lot of what's happening on the earth and where the earth is going and why things are going to unfold like they are. Because he's really committed to that particular people group. And he really is committed to getting them to repent and to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and be raised from the dead and saved from everlasting destruction. Because He really is committed to their forefathers. Like Paul says in Romans 11, have they fallen beyond, have they fallen beyond hope? No. The Lord hardened their heart that salvation would go to the Gentiles. Because He's not just Romans 3. He's not just the God of the Jews. Okay, Because that was the misperception, that He's just the God of the Jews. And Paul's like, no, no, he he really is the God of the Gentiles too. But then we've swung all the way to the other side. He's just the God of the Gentiles. The Jews are just another people group. You know, insignificant in the plan of salvation. No, he's the God of the Jews. He is the God of Israel. That is the primary way that he defines himself throughout redemptive history. He uses no other name more than God of Israel. He is the God of Israel, but He's also the God, the Lord of the whole earth and all the nations of the earth. He's the God of the Gentiles. And He will have mercy on the Gentiles too, as He will have mercy on the Jews, so that all may give glory to Him. In Romans 11, He's hardened them, and we Gentiles, we don't become conceited that all of a sudden we're awesome. Because we're in the same race as they are and keeping faith and walking in righteousness and casting vengeance upon the Lord and the day of the Lord and walking in, and embracing the cross, etc., we become conceited like we're awesome, just like they become conceited. We'll be cut off and thrown like a lake of fire just the way they will. But the Lord has sovereignly hardened that one people, and there will be a day to bring in the Gentiles to save as many that will repent, and then on that day He will orchestrate human history to crush them and to bring them to repentance that they might and reveal his son to them and they won't be blind forever the descendants of abraham and the jews will recognize jesus in mass and together in the age to come jew and gentile in harmony we will all have one father he will be the father of us all in the messiah and we will have one lord who richly blesses us all but they will be, they are and forever will be the firstborn nation, the firstborn son. And they will function in the age to come, in the coming kingdom, as the elder son. And I don't know how that's going to work out. And we'll save questions for later. Because i got to keep rolling. And I understand that I've taught differently in the past. But the Lord showed me in a dream I was wrong. There are nations in Revelation 21. The Lord said it. I woke up. I said okay, Lord, you're right. <laughs> and I confessed to him. I walked in, I sat down. I was wrong. There are nations in the age to come. And we went from there. <laughs> All right, so uh, Luke 1, uh, he will be great, referring to uh, Gabriel's reference to Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom and of His kingdom there will be no end. Acts 1, He appeared to them over a period of 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And they asked Him, in reference, they're not confused, He asked them, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In which Israel... You will rule as king over Israel and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem and be blessed. And he says, it's not for you know the time. It will happen, but the Father has said that time. For now you'll be a witness to me to the ends of the earth. John 12, blessed is the king of Israel. And so just reaffirming that Jesus really is the king of Israel. He's also the king of all the nations and the Gentiles. And his rule will extend from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Uh, So see the glory of Jerusalem. Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. I've chosen David to rule over my people. And so the Lord chose this city to be the place where the Messiah would rule from this family, from this people group, over all the peoples of the earth. You see the concentric idea? Psalm 102, My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But You, O Lord, sit and throne forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it's time to show her, show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants; their very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. And the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples of the when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord, and then that's when you get the bit about. Uh, the garment wearing out... How does he say it right after that? Psalm 102. Um, They assemble to worship. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them. They will be discarded, but you will remain the same and your years will never end. So in context of that picture, he uses the imagery of discarding a garment. And that's, the, the garments are always used as imagery of righteousness or unrighteousness, clean linens or filthy rags. And so the earth will, will, has worn out under the unrighteousness of man and the unrighteousness of principalities in the heavens. But the Lord will change out the unrighteousness in the heavens and upon the earth and clothe the earth and the heavens in righteousness in the age to come when He'll appear over glory and, and, and splendor. You see what I'm saying? And so it's not an annihilationist bit. He's just using language. And so that's the same point in 2 Peter 3. He's not going to annihilate the heavens and the earth, but he's going to burn it with fire because the fire of the Lord is going to come down upon all the ungodly and he's going to destroy the ungodly and destroy the principalities in the heavens and upon the earth the same way he destroyed the earth with the flood and destroyed unrighteousness on the earth. And he'll make a new heavens and a new earth the home of righteousness. Uh, so Isaiah 24, in that day he'll punch the powers in the heavens and on the earth. The Lord will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders. Isaiah 54, so Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 65 is really where you get the, uh, and Isaiah 60, uh, Isaiah 60. Isaiah. Fifty-four, sixty, and 55 is really where you get this idea of the glory of the new Jerusalem. And God, when the Messiah will descend and the Lord will appear over Jerusalem, and the Messiah will rebuild Jerusalem in glory, and it will be the praise of the whole earth, and all the nations will come up, and the glory will spread out from Jerusalem over the whole earth. Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into a song, shout for joy, you who never in labor, because more of the children are desolate, desolate woman than of those who has a husband. So he's referring to, this is what he quotes in Galatians 4, to refer to the Old and the New Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, you are not receiving, you will not be part of the resurrection of the New Jerusalem in the age to come. But under the New Covenant, you will be, and you're, you're free and not slaves to sin. And, um, so uh, for your maker is your husband the Lord Almighty is your name the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer He's, he is called the God of all the earth O afflicted city lashed by storms and, and not comforted I will build you with stones of turquoise your foundation of sapphires I'll make your battlements of rubies your gates of sparkling jewels your walls of precious stones did not the Messiah to suffer 53 and enter in his glory 54 anyway so it's even in the you know the two chapters there Uh, So from the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they'll revere His glory. He will come like a pent-up flood. The breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, which Paul quotes in, in Romans 11, to reaffirm that this is actually going to happen, that the Jews will not always be hardened, but they will receive their Redeemer. He will come to Zion, and He will do Isaiah 60, and the glory of the Lord will be over Israel and all the nations of the earth in the age to come. And so, um, arise and shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, to Zion. And those within it, the kings to the brightness of your dawn, your gates will always stand open. They'll never shut day or night. Men will bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal uh, procession. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Then all your people will be righteous, and they'll possess the land forever. The least of you become a thousand. The smallest of mighty nation. Two. I saw the Holy Spirit, the Holy City coming down, the New Jerusalem. I will create Jerusalem, and it's an image. Uh, and I, 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 don't, I don't think the image represents the reality of a big city coming down and crushing the old uh, Jerusalem. I think it represents the reality of the saints, the sons of Zion, the daughter of Zion, coming down upon the earth and the Messiah rebuilds Jerusalem in glory and creates Jerusalem to be a praise of the earth. Uh, either way, it's, it's really more, it's kind of a question of do you interpret the prophetic language of Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 60, Isaiah 65 as the normative standard or do you interpret Revelation 21 and 22 as the normative standard? And so I think, I think just the kind of organic nature of Isaiah is, is what I would lean towards more, but each to his own opinion. The point is Jerusalem is the praise of the earth and the glory of God goes across the earth. And that's the whole point of it. Um, so it comes down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, your maker is your husband, beautifully dressed for a husband. Uh, the, there's no more crying and weeping or pain. Uh, in verse 3 from Isaiah 65, it's shown with the glory of God. Isaiah 60, the glory of God rises upon you. His brilliance is like that very precious jewel, like a jasper and crystal from Isaiah 54. At had a great high wall, 12 gates. So the wall and the gates and the ramparts from Isaiah 54. On the gates were written the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's the new Jerusalem within Israel that all of the nations. I did not see a temple. And what's, what's bizarre is they translate it as temple, which is fine to translate it as temple, but there's two totally different words, the naos and the hieron. The hieron refers to the whole temple complex. The naos refers to the inner sanctuary. And so the, the point is not that there's not a temple in the age to come. He says there's not an inner sanctuary. And the very fact that he says there's not an inner sanctuary assumes that there's an outer court. You can't not have an inner sanctuary without having an outer court. And his point is is he's simply referring to Jeremiah 3. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, I'm your husband. In those days, when your numbers increase, men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds nor be remembered. It won't be missed, nor will another another one be made. At that time, they'll call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will gather to Jerusalem. Because that was the idea of the inner sanctuary was the footstool of God. That God ruled from and would be the throne of the Messiah to come. And so there's no longer an inner sanctuary because there's not a footstool. There's a throne that the footstool pointed towards. You see what I'm saying? That's the idea. So because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, the city does not need the sun and moon to shine on it. doesn't mean there's not going to be a sun and a moon and new heavens and new earth. It just means it doesn't need it because the glory of God coming out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem doesn't need the sun or the moon. And so uh, the city doesn't need to shine on the glory of God gives it light. The Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. They won't walk by the light of the sun. And how I'm not sure how all that'll work because the nations right now we walk by and we calculate our days and stuff by the light of the sun. And the age to come will calculate it by the glory as it relates to the earth from Jerusalem. And, and uh, I don't understand, but. A lot I don't understand. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Isaiah 60. On that, on on no day will its gates ever be shut. Isaiah 60. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. All your people will be righteous. Nor will anyone who does what's shameful and deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, Jew and Gentile from the nations. Okay, so D, the glory of the temple. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark place, a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Okay, so, and then they sing. What do they sing? What chorus do they sing in the parallel ver- version in First Chronicles? When the glory fills the temple, the Lord is good. His, mercy endures His covenant faithfulness endures forever. His chesed, His mercy, His love. And so, the glory fills the temple and they're like, the day of the Lord's going to happen! Do you get the logic of it? Because the temple was seen as the deposit of the glory of God that would cover the entire earth. And so he builds a temple the same way that they received the land as a deposit. The Messiah is going to come and we're going to receive this land forever in the glory and the resurrection. So, also, we build a temple. The glory fills it, the Lord fills it with his glory. And therefore, he's going to dwell here forever. He's going to continue. It's like the kind of the picture of the Lord of the Rings. I don't condone the Lord of the Rings or whatever, whatever. I don't care. But it's the picture of the ministeroth, and you have the stewards of Gondor. And they're supposed to steward that house until the rightful heir comes and takes up residence in in ministeroth. And so likewise... They were supposed to steward the temple of the Lord until the Messiah came and took up residence in that temple and glorified Jerusalem and restored the earth. You see what I'm saying? So Isaiah 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will, will stream to the Lord's temple that the Messiah will sit in. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord, the house of our God. Uh, The house of the God of Jacob, He'll teach us His way. The law will go out from Zion and the rulership over the whole earth. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, He'll judge between the nations. Ezekiel 43, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel is coming from the east. The sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with His glory, the earth shone, or the, like the NIV says, the earth was radiant with His glory as He came. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple." which I assume is the Messiah. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. In Isaiah 6, Here is the man whose name is the branch. He will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will will be clothed in majesty. He will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. Because he will restore the replication in which God sits in his heavenly temple upon his throne in the inner sanctuary. And Adam sat in the inner uh, sanctuary in the garden within Eden and ruled. And likewise, in the age to come, you will have a restoration of that original glory and the Messiah will sit enthroned within the temple within Jerusalem over Israel, over all the nations of the earth. And so, this is the point of what what Jesus is saying in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Also trust in me concerning the day of the Lord. In my Father's house, okay, the other two times it's used, it's clearly referring to the temple. The Father's house is the temple. Did I not have to be in my Father's house? He goes in. This is my Father's house. You've made a den of robbers in Luke 2 and John 2. The Father's house is the temple, okay? We're on the same page. In my Father's house are many rooms. So you read through Ezekiel 41 and 42 before you get to Ezekiel 43, and the whole two chapters on the rooms. There's three levels of rooms, and each level has like 30 rooms. I mean, there's many rooms in my Father's house in the age to come. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And the place is positional, okay? Because this passage is a parallel passage to Luke 22. It's, before, it's the Last Supper. And so this is the discourse that Jesus is giving that is the parallel to Luke 22 when the dispute arises amongst who will be the greatest. He says, "...the greatest among you will be a servant, like He says in John 13." And then in John 14, he says, like the conclusion of Luke 22, A kingdom is conferred upon me, and I confer a kingdom upon you, that you may sit with me at my table, in my kingdom, on thrones, ruling over the house of Israel. Where does he sit on his throne? In his father's house in the temple. And you'll sit with me on your own thrones. And where will you sleep? In the rooms. There are many rooms in my Father's temple. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? (laughs) All right. And if I go to prepare a place for you, and the place is like like, uh, Paul says in Acts 26, the Lord did, uh," how does he say that? To give the Gentiles a place among the uh, elect. Okay, keep moving. Sorry. Luke 24, um, while He was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy because their faith was at a, a, about to explode. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Why? Why did they stay continually at the temple? Because the angel said, He will return just as He went up. And where does He return? Right, See so you get the picture. Acts 2, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So this is why they didn't replicate the temple ministry wherever they went. They met in homes and they met at the temple. Because they expected Jesus to return to the temple, it would be a little bit, you know, just completely illogical and a little bit blasphemous to go around and... and plant temples all over the place like the catholic church you know and, and after that has done but the point is is that they worshiped at the temple and praised because they expected jesus to return there and set up and glorify it all right and then the glory of the messiah the joy of the whole earth mount si- mount zion the city of the great king which jesus quotes in matthew 5 psalm 132 the lord has chosen zion he's desired it one will come from the body of David. This in his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I will sit enthroned, for I've desired it there. Where he sits enthroned on Zion, he will make a horn sprout for David, and prepare a lamp for his anointed. His enemies he will clothe with shame, but on his head, on his head, the horn from David, the crown will shine. Daniel seven, he'll receive all glory, power, and sovereignty of all the nations. So Luke two, the angel says. To, uh, to the shepherds in the field, "'Don't be afraid. "'I bring you good news of great joy. "'They'll be for all people. "'Today in the town of David, "'a Savior's been born to you. "'He's Christ the Lord. "'Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts "'appeared with the angel praising God, "'saying, Glory to God in the highest, "'and on earth peace to men "'on whom His favor rests.'" And they prophesy this Christ that's been born, and whoever His favor rests, there'll be peace, and whoever He's displeased with, there'll be a lake of fire." Matthew 25, He'll sit on a glorious throne. Matthew 19, when the Son of Man sits on, a glorious, on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, so I won't go through. To finish up the last half hour, I really want to work through. I'll let you read. And I didn't put any reprints over the next one, two, three, almost four pages. No reprints. These are all of the Kingdom Passages through the next pages. I didn't put in the the five or so parables, if you count Matthew 13 as one parable, but there's about five that the kingdom of heaven is like, which we'll deal with that in the future. But these are are almost every other one of the kingdom passages not repeating their parallel versions in the synoptic gospels. You see what I'm saying? And so these are, and they're all future related and the expectation is in the future. It's really edifying just to work through them and see them all in the hope of the coming kingdom, but I won't work through them for sake of time. The problem with that is I want to illustrate in that and, and give you a resource that this is the dominant reference to the nature of the kingdom of God, and that Jesus simply reiterates that the kingdom of God is exactly what the Jewish expectation is. The expectation is just not that the Messiah would suffer. And so you end up with a there's about 10 or 12 or so passages that reference the kingdom with different language in its present tense and figurative language and parabolic language and so those are the ones we're going to work through real fast at the end but it's those particular cases that people take and they plug within a platonic framework to reinterpret it as a spiritualized immaterialized uh, uh, kingdom presently unto an immaterial reality. Or different versions and slants. So, there's common the there's common the common views concerning the kingdom. There's five. Okay, so it's not real complicated. Just think of there's five major car makers. And if you're not familiar with them at all, it's like oh, I can't deal with it. But if you you know after a while, you're like there's oh, the Honda, there's the Ford, there's a Chevy, and you get the so you can view the five uh, main views of how the kingdom and eschatology will be according to how they deal with the Platonic confusion. And so the classical one that Origen introduces is amillennialism. And they, they give you kind of a spectrum of how God relates to creation. And amillennialism is ultimately God unfaithful to the material realm, destroys it, and we all dwell with him. So he's ultimately unfaithful to creation on one end and he's ultimately faithful to creation on the other end in restoring it. And then you have a spectrum in the middle with the dispensationalist right in the middle in which he's faithful to the material and he's faithful to the immaterial with different plans of salvation. Okay, so the first one, millennialism, in which you, uh, and this is the problem, is that you end up, the discussion about these different views ends up, Pointing on specific topics that don't really relate to the real issue at hand, like if you read on dispensationalists, all major dispensationalists. You read Ryrie's dispensationalism today. You read, uh, you know, Schaefer's systematic theology. You read, uh, you know, progressive dispensationalism by by uh, Blazing and Bach. It's all very clear that what defines dispensationalism. Is the distinction between the church and Israel based on the two plans of salvation? Everybody has plans of dispensations. Everybody talks about dispensations. It's not the issue of different dispensations that makes you a dispensationalist. What it is, is the two plans of salvation. And so you end up talking about amillennial and postmillennialism with these particular on side subjects that aren't the real issue. And the real issue is what is their end game? Okay, so you can take, you just get big volumes, and this is what seminary taught me. You just take big volumes of works, seven volume works, whatever, and you just, you look through the table of contents and you find their end game. What do they say happens at the end? And once you figure out what their end game is and how they view existence at the end, you can pretty much work out all of what they believe in between there. And infer, usually you have to infer how they viewed it in the beginning. So, amillennialism millennialism with origin, God's ultimately unfaithful, and the oddity of all millennialism. There's a real comeback now as a backlash against uh, the whole millennial debate with with dispensationalists because they're so virulent, virulent in their in their arguing. There's a backlash in which you have this theology of restored creation, but still a holding to kind of the all There's not going to be a millennium in the age to come, which is strange because the whole millennialist position developed by Origen reinforced by Augustine was to validate the immaterial heavenly destiny and so to argue for a restored creation but not accept the plain language of the millennium which was common expectation in Jewish tradition and reinforced in Revelation 20 but whatever so then post-millennial, postmillennialism is the next one on the spectrum in which at least God has some desire to care for creation. And there's some, you know, desire to keep up with and rule over, etc., even though he's going to destroy it in the end. And then dispensational premillennialism, classically, not modified, not progressive, because dispensationalism is a is the boggy marsh like in Lord of the Rings. Don't look too long. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's a really complicated movement, and you have three main movements of dispensationalism. the classic dispensationalist up to the 50s and 60s, classical with you know Rye, with uh, Schaefer and Schofield and and uh, and Darby, and then you have modified dispensationalism, which is like Ryrie and Wulverd Wol- and and Pentecost, and then you have progressive modern dispensationalism. Dis- Modified was 50s, 60s. Progressive started kind of late 70s, early 80s with Bach and Blazing and Saucy, etc. So I'm just laying out classical dispensationalism and it was real clear, according to them, that there were two eternal plans of salvation. One in the material, one in the immaterial. And this is how they dealt with the Platonic... Uh, the Platonic issue. And so the Jews were part of the earthly plan of salvation. They were the earthly people. They were part of the kingdom of God. And then the Gentiles are part of the immaterial plan of salvation, the immaterial heavenly destiny. And to them was the kingdom of heaven. And they made the distinction between the two. And the dichotomy was eternal. And then, but if you see on the diagram, you have to, with the cross, it has two covenants. One to immaterial and one to the earth. And that was the demise of classical dispensationalism they couldn't uh... maintain that but we'll move on so then the most popular in the modern academic realm is to view the already not yet type kingdom which is lad and lad really this view is a combination of the earthly plan of salvation and the earthly destiny of the dispensationalist which he was raised in and then the the sovereignty, dominionist, post-millennial worldview that he was trained in as a Wesleyan and taught at Fuller, etc. And so you have the kind of mitigation between the two in which there is a, if you view Lads, uh, his kind of classical... Some of you guys, I know this is way over your head, but I just want to give you for <laughs> down the road because if you go out and start saying the kingdom of God isn't now... Kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, you're just gonna get flattened. <laughs> and so, if you think of Ladd's classical design, that was kind of started in his studies on the kingdom in the in the late 50s, and then he really brought to fruition in the early 70s in his New Testament theology. You have this is his classical diagram. Okay, and so the Kingdom of God was inaugurated at the first coming. And then at the second coming, it comes to fulfillment and ushers in. And so this diagram is what he's done: is he's taken the Platonic. Number one, there's no, and the, the assumption is there's no sovereignty and no kingdom before the first coming. So you got a lot of issues there. But so he's taken this, and really the way the diagram should go, if he was faithful to what he believed, the diagram should go like this in which you have an idealization of creation and the kingdom being progressively established, but not to completion, and the Lord establishes it at completion at the second coming, and then you have an idealization or a supernaturalization of creation at the second coming. And so this diagram doesn't quite do it in which it really should go like this and then this line slowly disappears and then there's just one throne and, and you kind of have a bringing together of, of, the, uh, of the two worlds. But you have the sovereignty aspect of the Lord establishing his kingdom now through the church, but it's only partial and the Lord will do it in full in the age to come. But at least it gives some sort of framework to reference the restoration or at least the idealization of creation and that we'll be on this earth. It won't be like it is now. It'll be supernaturalized. but And so really there's a much more solid anchor of faith. So I appreciate, lad, in this sense, but you're still dealing with the confusion and you still end up identifying the kingdom already established through the church and not yet. And the anchor of faith, if you're given that scenario, you'll pick the already. And you'll give your whole life and energy into the already. And you'll get the same product as the post millennials You see what I'm saying? All right. So, controversial kingdom passages. Number one, Matthew 3. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or some translations say near. And so the parallel version to this is Luke 3. So you get commentary in Luke 3 on what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be at hand, which we won't go over, but clearly it's the day of the Lord. And all he's doing is a prophetical reiteration. He's just reiterating what the prophets have already said. Like Luke 10, because the kingdom of God and the day of the Lord are synonymous. Alright, like Luke 10 says, Heal the sick, tell them the kingdom of God is at hand or near you. When you enter the town, say, Even the dust of your town sticks to your feet. uh, I wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, the day of judgment for Sodom than for that town. And so the day of judgment and the kingdom of God being at hand or near are synonymous. And again, it's at hand temporally, not metaphysically. And so it's just like the prophets say, Isaiah 13, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near or at hand. Destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath. Joel 1, alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand or it's near. Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near. It's at hand coming quickly. It will consume the entire earth. And so this is the same, the same message of John the Baptist. The day of the Lord, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, you brood of vipers. And they come out in fear and trembling because he says, look, the, the, the bits in his hand, he's going to clear the threshing floor. He'll put the wheat in his barn, the righteous. The chaff, he'll burn up with unquenchable fire, which is the, you know, it's the imagery of the day of the Lord, the righteous being saved. And so uh, the kingdom of the, the day of the Lord likewise is still at hand, Romans 13, Philippians 4, James 5, First Peter 4, Second Peter 3. The day of the Lord is at hand temporally. And so this is exactly what Peter is saying. There's scoffers that will come saying the day of the Lord's never going to happen. It's been just the way it has since, since the beginning of time, but, by the same word that God judged the world with the flood, He'll judge the heavens and the earth with fire and the, day of the ju- and, and the day of the Lord. He says, But don't forget this, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slick, slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient. So that's times relative to God. The day of the Lord was at hand with the prophets. With Isaiah, it was at hand with the prophets at the exile. It was at hand with the prophets after the exile. With Malachi, it was at hand with John the Baptist. It was at hand with Jesus. It's at hand with the disciples. You see what I'm saying? And today, we preach the same message. The day of the Lord is at hand. Whether tomorrow... Or 20 years, 50 or 200, that's not, it's not our concern. The Father set that day. But we live with urgency to give an account for our lives in righteousness and not ungodliness on that day. Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So again, their expectation is your kingdom being the messianic kingdom. And again, all these passages, if... It, it's, there's kind of this picture that they're just so dull of heart and Jesus is kind of introducing this spiritual kingdom underneath and bringing it along. And the problem is is that if you don't believe rightly, your end is a lake of fire. And so if Jesus doesn't clearly articulate them and clearly rebuke them for having their false understanding and expectation of the kingdom, then he's either a bad teacher at best or a false teacher in truth because he's leading them into untruth. And so, uh, but the, the context of Matthew 6 isn't that way. The whole context is the Pharisees, they're hypocrites. They pray, they give to the poor, but it's just to be honored in this age. It's not in fear of the day of the Lord to produce fruit now in keeping with our repentance. They don't actually fear the day of the Lord. And so, but you are not to be like that. You go pray in your room before your Father and He will reward you on that day. And the way you stay right, unlike the hypocrites, but between now and them, then this is how you pray to stay on that narrow path. Our Father, who art in heaven, who is sovereign over all things, your kingdom come, your will be done, unto that day when it's restored on earth like it is in heaven. Between now and then, Give us our daily bread. Help us forgive our enemies like you forgive our enemies. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one ultimately on the day of the Lord. For if you forgive men in this age, you will be forgiven. If you relate like God in this age, you will be forgiven on the day of the Lord. But if you don't forgive men, your end is a lake of fire. And so the whole context is the judgment on the Pharisees on the day of the Lord. And so the... Talk. uh, the commenting on the kingdom is to reinforce that. Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there are none greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, because the least will become a mighty nation, like Isaiah 60 says. That's all he's saying, because he's so awesome, but encouragement that you'll be even more awesome. In the age to come, for the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And so both of those are in the middle or passive voice. And so the kingdom of God is suffering violence and the violent men are doing violence uh, uh, against it. And so the whole context of Matthew 11 is the persecution of John in the prison the persecution of Jesus, and they called J- John the Baptist a demonized guy and Jesus a drunkard. But on that day, you will not be lifted up. You will be. There'll be woe to you, Corazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, because if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and, and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you haven't repented at John the Baptist preaching or my preaching. You're not. You don't respond. You play the flute and you, you sing the dirge to us, and you manipulate us, and you call us demonized and a glutton and a, and a drunkard. And so the whole context is persecution of John and, and Jesus. And, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so Matthew 12: if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this is prophetical language talking about the certainty of the judgment of the day of the Lord. Like, like Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 2, they, the Jews, displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them. So he uses the exact same word, the exact same phrase, and the exact same tense. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And so that's all Jesus is doing. Jesus comes along. There's a demon-possessed guy that's brought up to him. He drives out the demon. They say, could he be the son of God? Could he be the son of David? The Pharisees go, he drives out demons by Beelzebub. And Jesus is like, well, okay, if I drive out demons... And you drive out demons, how can Satan's kingdom stand? Like, how does he keep himself amok if he drives out his own demons? Wouldn't the confusion be too great? But then, how do your people drive out demons? So, on the day of the Lord, your people will be your judges for saying that I drive out demons by Satan and demons. You see what I'm saying? And so then he says, your people will be your judges, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, let me explain it. A strong man has to tie up, you have to tie up a strong man to take his house. And so if I tie up the strong man and you tie up the strong man, but the devil ties up his own strong man, how is he keeping hold of the house? But my pe- I and your people both tie up the strong man by the same spirit. Though your people abuse the spirit and don't do it out of right ambitions, but they'll get their motives will be exposed. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Anyone, if you had just said, I drove out a demon. And they said, could this be the Son of David? If you had just said, no, he's not the Son of David... He's this, he's from here, whatever, whatever. But you spoke a, a word against the Holy Spirit by which I drove out the demon. So if you had spoken against me, you would have been forgiven. But since you exalt yourself and judge against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. And so then he goes on, uh, either in the, this age or the age to come, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the, mouth, the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the overflow of your heart, you are not looking to submit yourself to God and who He has appointed as the, as the judge of the living and the dead. You've exalted yourself. And out of that position of the heart, your mouth has spoken and condemned my driving out of this demon. And so, But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that has been spoken. You just spoke this careless word in light of me driving out this demon. And the kingdom of God will come upon you. It has come to come it's for sure. Because you've spoken this word and you will be judged by this word on the, on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be committed and by your words you will be condemned. You see what I'm saying? He's, he's reiterating the certainty of their judgment by what they have committed to and what they have spoken. So, and it's, it's, all it is, is it's the, it's the nature of prophetic language. It's the nature of faith and how you speak in faith. Like he says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, like he says in Romans 4. He calls that which is not as though it were to reinforce the certainty of the future. For you have died with Him, but then you'll appear in glory. Or Ephesians 2, but because of His great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. God, God and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparably incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So it's the, it's the same way like Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for the glory of God has come upon you. The Redeemer has come to Zion. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's speaking in the present or the past tense language for the certainty and security based on your trust and belief in the sovereignty of God that the day of the Lord will happen. Uh, so... Um, the disciples came to him and said why do you speak to them in parables Jesus answered uh, them to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it's not been granted for I speak to them in parables because because the heart of this people has become dull with their ears they scarcely hear they've closed their eyes otherwise they would see with their eyes hear with their ears and understand with their hearts return and I would heal them So he quotes Isaiah 6, which, if you interpret Isaiah 6 as a vision in which Isaiah believes the day of the Lord is at hand, woe to me, he's going to destroy me. The temple shakes, you know, glory fills, I mean, uh, uh, smoke fills the temple as a sign of the judgment that's going to come out of the temple. And the Lord says to him, Go to this people and tell them, ever hearing about the day of the Lord, but never understanding, ever seeing, but never perceiving. They don't actually believe it. And so there's time who will go to them, send me before the day of the Lord to save them and to turn them and to apply the cold to the lip as an atoning sacrifice type of deal. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 in the same way in reference to the parables that the Lord gives time to be saved from the wrath to come. He preaches the message of the kingdom, but it falls on hard hearts. It falls on some who really are living for this age. They spring up with joy in the resurrection, but then they fall away. But then some are amongst the weeds. They're, they're thorny. They have lots of cares of this age, and it chokes out their hope in the age to come. Because what happens when you purge of all the crap in your house? You feel freedom. Oh, I don't have to keep up with all the little machines and all the crap and whatever, whatever. And so, likewise, there's weeds and tares, and they and the Lord gives time for them to grow together. There's fish together. There's the Lord allows wickedness to grow in yeast and in the birds of the air, both metaphors of wickedness. And so, um, so this is the context of that. So Ephesians three, he says the kingdom of God is like, and explains, etc., etc. And so all he's saying is, like Paul says in Ephesians 3, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for all ages has been hidden in God uh, who created all things. So the kingdom of God is like the administration of the mystery of God unto the day of the Lord when the kingdom of God is established. And so he uses parables to say the kingdom of God is like, but he includes the administration unto the uh, messianic kingdom. Does that make sense? And when you look at all of the parables, you know, Matthew 19, Matthew 20, Matthew uh, what's 19, 20, 1 and 21, then Matthew 25, then Luke 19. What are the other ones that aren't repeats other than Matthew 13? But they all, the point of them is that they all are in reference to, like uh, Luke 17, where he says, the reference point is the end of the age. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king and then to return. And he judges people according to their faith in the return. So again, the anchor point for the kingdom is always uh, the end in the parables. Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You do not enter, and the verse before it gives the context for the end of the age. Okay? Well, I won't go to it. The verse before it is, "...he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You go and you make converts, and you disciple them to be twice the sons of Gehenna." You are a child of the devil. You are a son of Gehenna. You're not a child of the Father. Your Father is not God. Your father's the devil and you are a child of Gehenna. You're not a son of the kingdom. You're not an heir of the kingdom. And so you make converts and you disciple them to be twice the sons of Gehenna. Woe to you! How will you escape being condemned to Gehenna? And so you make converts and you shut the kingdom of God in their face and you make them a son of the lake of fire. Um, Luke 17, okay? So, once having been asked by the Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Okay, so, the the next verse after that, in the bullet point, then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, here he is, or there he is, but don't go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes from the east to the west, to one end of the heavens to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. But just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. They'll be eating and drinking And then suddenly on that day the flood comes and it will be the same way as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, eating and drinking, marrying, giving and marriage. And then on that day judgment came down fire from heaven and destroyed them. So it will be in the coming of the uh, days of the Son of Man where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And then he tells them a parable that they might not give up, that they might pray and, and not give up. And so the parallel to Luke 17 is Matthew 24, when his disciples come to him and say, when will the kingdom of God come? What, be, what will be the sign of the end of the age in your coming? He says the exact same thing. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ and deceive many. See, I've told you ahead of time. If anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, Or don't go out, don't go running off after him. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so is the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. So the parallel passage is in Matthew 24. Alright? So, um, um, Okay, so I want to do one grammatical thing that makes the situation clear. Okay, the verb for the kingdom of God is in your midst is a me, to be. When a me, to be, is used in relation to location, it it reflects movement. So like in John 7, but we know where this man is from. And the Greek word is the same word, me," but the ESV and the New Living translate it. We know where this man comes from because it involves location and therefore it involves movement. Okay, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from or where he comes from. Then Jesus, still speaking in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me. You know where I am from, where I come from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from or I come from him and he sent me. And so it's the exact same uh, genitive case and the same verb to be. And so what Jesus is saying is, and I think would be a more clear translation is, listen, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your observation of an insurrectionist movement. You're not going to say, like the guys out in the wilderness in Acts 21, you know, they gathered out there, here's an insurrectionist Messiah, don't go out to Him. Or here in the inner courts, here's the Messiah in an insurrectionist movement, don't go to Him. It doesn't come with your observation. The king, because the kingdom of God comes into your midst from above. For the Son of Man will come like le- lightning from the east and the west. Because that was the, that was the expectation that it would be the Messiah coming in a Maccabean revolt, insurrectionist type movement that would gather around a man out in the desert or in the inner courts, they would rise up, cast off Rome. No! It doesn't come by the strength of man or the sword of man. It comes by the strength of God and it comes down into your midst and judges you and splits you asunder by the sword of the Lord and by God. And so, in that day, it will be like lightning from the east to the west, like it was in the days of the son of, of Noah. Noah didn't lead an insurrectionist movement. No one said, here he is or there he is, like Sodom and Gomorrah. No one said, here comes the rain and the fire from heaven. On that day, boom, from heaven upon them. But they're all expecting the kind of Maccabean revolt bit. So that's all he's correcting in the equation. And so like Isaiah 31, as a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He'll shield it, deliver it. He'll pass over it, rescue it. Assyria will fall by the, by a sword not that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. Their stronghold will fall because of terror at the side of the battle standard. Their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion... In who, "...whose fire is in Zion or comes to Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem or comes to Jerusalem, see our king will reign in righteousness and rulers rule justice." Or Isaiah 66, "...the Lord is coming with fire, his chariots like a whirlwind, he'll bring down his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire, for with fire and with his sword the Lord will execute judgment on all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord, for where there are slain and dead bodies..." There, the the birds will gather overhead, and so he's making reference to, I think that specific passage, but maybe others I don't know. So anyway, that's that's the bit about. It's just a correction of the insurrectionist expectation, like the Maccabean revolt. And he said, Jesus. Uh, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so not the immaterial paradise, but there is a paradise in the third heaven where Jesus knows that on the cross He will be vindicated from God and He will be raised from the dead and seated at His right hand by His Father until He makes His enemies His footstool. And He looks at the man and says, Today you will be with Me. Where I am, you will also be. And then you will be with Me uh, when I descend. John 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world or does not come of this world. Uh, If my kingdom were of this world, or uh, if my kingdom were come from this world, my servants would have been fighting that, uh, that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And his point is, my kingdom isn't by the strength of men. I have 12 legions of angels. You have no authority. You have no authority. Because Pilate says don't you know I could kill you and crucify you? And Jesus says, you have no authority except what my Father gives from above. So he who handed me over to you is is guilty of a greater sin. But my kingdom isn't of the world. You Your expectation is, aren't you the king of the Jews? Answer me. He says, my kingdom isn't like your kingdom. It's not of the world. My kingdom is from... Is, is is not of the world. If it was like your kingdom, my followers would fight for me. But my trust is in the Lord, and the Lord will vindicate me and execute judgment. Uh, Romans 14, so do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so the context of the whole discussion in Romans 14 is living according to your faith, walking worthy of your calling, producing fruit in accordance with your repentance. Okay, and so Romans 13, he goes into the bit of uh, of living a life of love and fulfilling the, the law which pointed to the day of the Lord, for salvation is near now, because that's his point, is that, This was the point of the law. The law was meant to conform your lifestyle to the righteousness of the age to come. So salvation is near now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, the light of the age to come, when the darkness is almost over in this age, when salvation is established on the earth. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not as in the nighttime in orgies, drunkenness, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then the next verse is, verse, is chapter 14, verse 1. And he, he continues on the same line of thought and reason that you live as in the daytime. And he picks the exact he continues that line of reason right through to chapter fifteen, therefore don 't quarrel amongst yourself as Jew and Gentile, live in harmony as in the daytime, as in the age to come, and then quotes the various verses and so the whole talk in Romans fourteen over Jews eating this and Gentiles not eating that and etc, etc is because there's quarrel and strife between the two. And so the whole point is Paul says, eat according to your faith. The man who does not live according to his faith is in sin. And that's his point. The man who does not live according to his revelation of the daytime and how it will be in the age to come is living in sin in hypocrisy. But according to the light that you have, you know that in the age to come, there's not going to be quarrels and controversies over what you eat and drink. So therefore, you, don't, you, you, you can eat and drink whatever, but the, but the Jew doesn't have that understanding and clarity, then he abstains from some and eats in others. Okay, but each will give his account before the Lord. Because the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. The age to come isn't about eating and drinking. The age to come is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy covering the whole earth. And that's how it will be between Jew and Gentile in the age to come. Okay, so look at the... just read through it. So verse 1, "...accept him in light of put on... The Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord. Live as you will in the age to come. The next verse: Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls at the day of at the day of the Lord. You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? We for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And his point is, these are not disputable matters when we stand before the judgment seat and enter into the kingdom of God. these You won't dispute over these things. And so why are you disputing and condemning God's servant who will stand before Him at the judgment when it's not something that He'll be judged for? See what I'm saying? So each... Uh... Uh, As it's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Do not by your eating destroy your brother when he gives his account to God at the day of the Lord for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. This is not what the day of judgment and the kingdom of God will deem as good versus evil. The kingdom of God will judge. This is what's good. Righteousness, peace, and joy and the Holy Spirit. This is what's evil. Malice, envy, jealousy, etc., "...because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith." In what? When he stands before God at the day of the Lord. And the kingdom is uh, established. Okay, and then 1 Corinthians 4, lastly, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so, the, again, the context in chapter 1 through 4, is the whole bit about these arrogant men who are causing strife in your midst about I follow Paul or I follow Paulos or I follow uh, 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 Christ, and so the argument is over men who puff themselves up and and relate their their wisdom and knowledge to one another uh, and get people to follow them and write their names across each other, and so his point is is that the the kingdom of God is not about outward appearance, the kingdom of God is about truth inwardly and that's what the analogy is making because he uses the exact same thing in 2 Timothy 3 understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money, proud arrogant, abusive, swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power or its truth. And so, and so this is, it's just a quoting of the idea from like Isaiah 29. They come near me with, honor me with their lips. It's not a matter of talking. It's a matter of truth and power inwardly. But their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 48 uh, You call on the name and and, uh, come from Lion Judah, you take oaths in the name of the Lord, invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. Because that's his context, is that he's going to come and expose these guys who are arrogant and conceited and drawing men after themselves. And they look good outwardly, but they're actually false inwardly. And then he goes into that because that's the whole bit in the whole controversy in Corinth is that you have all these false apostles and false prophets and false teachers coming through and, they're, uh, and whatever. And so then right after that, chapter uh, 5, clearly the, the uh, kingdom of God, you have the immoral brov- brother, you hand him over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And then you have the controversy in chapter six of, you know, you take each other to court because of all your disputes over who you follow. Don't you know you will, you'll, you'll judge the earth, don't you know you'll judge angels? How much more do you, dis- do you settle disputes in this age? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, chapter 5, or adulterers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual thieves, greedy drunkards, slanderers, will inherit the kingdom of God." And so, uh, clearly the kingdom of God is future and he's referencing the kingdom of God is not a matter of, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we say this? Didn't you know? It's not a matter of the lip service. It's a matter of the truth inwardly that God will judge human hearts by. And so it's not like Paul has this kind of schizophrenic that the kingdom of God is now, but it is in the future. It's just that he's using the, the uh, future reality as a standard of discipleship to live by now and judgment to which how you judge men now in your disputes and controversies is 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 determined by the standard that you believe the day of the Lord will be in the kingdom of God. So again, I'm not saying that all of those are absolutely airtight and leak proof. I'm just saying that the vast majority of the Kingdom of God passages are established by the Messiah in context to the resurrection, and that's the anchor of hope, and that's what we eagerly await for, and that's our blessed hope, etc., etc. And the few passages that can be interpreted one way or the other, the context is clearly referencing the Day of the Lord, or is most clearly referencing the Day of the Lord. I won't say absolutely, but the context is, is generally the Day of the Lord. And so... If you pick out a few of those and set them out in contrast to all the others, it's, uh, well, it's folly. So, Okay, so my goal in all of that, again, just to wrap up the seminar, is to establish a biblical theology that sets its hope in the restoration of creation by the Messiah who will restore creation by raising the dead and establishing the, the kingdom. Overturning death and establishing righteousness on the earth. And what does that produce in us? It produces right relationship to God that we're not the appointed one, that we put faith in Christ Jesus, and we put hope in His righteousness that He's established, and we don't walk according to the righteousness of the false standards of men, and we sojourn in putting our hope fully on the grace to be revealed to us in the day to and co- the age to come, and we function as a people as sojourning pilgrims, as witnesses of the day of the Lord.